0: Part Two, Chapter Five of the Fur Country. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Fur Country by Jules Verne. Part Two, Chapter Five. From July twenty fifth to August twentieth hobson's first care on his return to the fort was to make inquiries of thomas black as to the situation of the little colony no change had taken place for the last twenty-four hours but as subsequently appeared the island had floated one degree of latitude further south whilst still retaining its motion towards the west it was now at the same distance from the equator as icy cape a little promontory of western alaska and two hundred miles from the american coast the speed of the current seemed to be less here than in the eastern part of the arctic ocean but the island continued to advance and much to hobson's annoyance towards the dreaded Bering strait it was now only the twenty-fourth july and a current of average speed would carry it in another month through the strait and into the heated ways of the pacific where it would melt like a lump of sugar in a glass of water mrs Barnett acquainted madge with the result of the exploration of the island she explained to her the arrangement of the layers of earth and ice at the part where the isthmus had been broken off told her that the thickness of the ice below the sea level was estimated at five feet related the accident to sergeant long in short she made her fully understand the reasons there were to fear the breaking up or sinking of the ice-field The rest of the colony had, however, no suspicion of the truth. A feeling of perfect security prevailed. It never occurred to any of the brave fellows that Fort Hope was floating above an awful abyss, and that the lives of all its inhabitants were in danger. All were in good health, the weather was fine, and the climate pleasant and bracing. The baby Michael got on wonderfully, and was beginning to toddle about between the house and the palisade. And Corporal Joliffe, who was extremely fond of him, was already beginning to teach him to hold a gun, and to understand the duties of a soldier. Oh, if Mrs. Joliffe would but present him with such a son! But alas, the blessing of children, for which he and his wife prayed every day, was as yet denied to them. Meanwhile, the soldiers had plenty to do. McNab and his men, Peterson, Belchay, Gary, Pond, and Hope, worked zealously at the construction of a boat, a difficult task likely to occupy them for several months. But as their vessel would be of no use until next year, after the thaw, they neglected none of their duties at the factory on its account. Hobson let things go on as if the future of the factory were not compromised, and preserved in keeping the men in ignorance. This serious question was often discussed by the officer and his staff— and mrs Barnett and madge differed from their chief on the subject they thought it would be better to tell the whole truth the men were brave and energetic not likely to yield to despair and the shock would not be great if they heard of it now instead of only when their situation was so hopeless that it could not be concealed but in spite of the justice of these remarks hobson would not yield and he was supported by sergeant long perhaps after all they were right They were both men of long experience, and knew the temper of their men. And so the work of provisioning and strengthening the fort proceeded. The palisaded encant was repaired with new stakes, and made higher in many places, so that it really formed a very strong fortification. McNabb also put into execution, with his chief's approval, a plan he had long had at heart. At the corners abutting on the lake, he built two little pointed sentry-boxes, which completed the defences, and Corporal Joliffe anticipated with delight the time when he should be sent to relieve the guard. He felt that they gave a military look to the buildings, and made them really imposing. The palisade was now completely finished, and McNab, remembering the sufferings of the last winter, built a new woodshed close up against the house itself with a door of communication inside, so that there would be no need to go outside at all. By this contrivance the fuel would always be ready to hand. On the left side of the house, opposite the shed, McNab constructed a large sleeping-room for the soldiers, so that the camp-bed could be removed from the common room. This room was also to be used for meals and work. The three married couples had private rooms walled off, so that the large house, was relieved of them, as well as of all the other soldiers. A magazine for furs only was also erected behind the house, near the powder magazine, leaving the loft free for stores, and the rafters and ribs of the latter were bound with iron cramps, that they might be able to resist all attacks. McNabb also intended to build a little wooden chapel, which had been included in Hobson's original plan of the factory, but its erection was put off until next summer. With what eager interest would the lieutenant have once watched the progress of his establishment? Had he been building on firm ground, with what delight he would have watched the houses, sheds, and magazines rising about him. He remembered the scheme of crowning Cape Bathurst with a redoubt for the protection of Fort Hope with a sigh. The very name of the factory, Fort Hope, made his heart sink within him, for should it not more truly be called Fort Despair? These various works took up the whole summer, and there was no time for Inuai. The construction of the boat proceeded rapidly. McNabb meant it to be of about thirty tons measurement, which would make it large enough to carry some twenty passengers, several hundred miles in the fine season." the carpenter had been fortunate enough to find some bent pieces of wood so that he was able quickly to form the first ribs of the vessel and soon the stern and stern-post fixed to the keel were upon the dockyard at the foot of cape bathurst whilst the carpenters were busy with hatchets saws and adzes the hunters were eagerly hunting the reindeer and polar hares which abounded near the fort the lieutenant however told Marbara and Sabine not to go far away, stating as a reason that until the buildings were completed he did not wish to attract the notice of rivals. The truth was he did not wish the changes which had taken place to be noticed. One day Marlborough inquired if it was not now time to go to Walrus's Bay and get a fresh supply of Morse oil for burning, and Hobson replied rather hastily, "'No, Marborough, it would be useless.' The lieutenant knew only too well that Walrus's Bay was two hundred miles away, and that there were no morses to be hunted on the island. It must not be supposed that Hobson considered the situation desperate even now. He often assured Mrs. Barnett, Madge, and Long that he was convinced the island would hold together until the bitter cold of winter should thicken its foundation and arrest its course at one and the same time after his journey of discovery hobson estimated exactly the area of his new dominions the island measured more than forty miles round from which its superficial area would appear to be about one hundred and forty miles at the least by way of comparison we may say that victoria island was rather larger than st helena and its area was about the same as that of paris within the line of fortifications If then it should break up into fragments, the separate parts might still be of sufficient size to be habitable for some time. When Mrs. Barnett expressed her surprise that a floating ice-field could be so large, Hobson replied by reminding her of the observations of Arctic navigators. Perry, Penny, and Franklin had met with ice-fields in the polar seas one hundred miles long and fifty broad. Captain Calais abandoned his boat on an ice-field measuring at least three hundred square miles. And what was Victoria Island compared to it? Its size was, however, sufficient to justify a hope that it would resist the action of the warm currents until the cold weather set in. Hobson would not allow himself to doubt— His despair arose, rather, from the knowledge that the fruit of all his cares, anxieties, and dangers must eventually be swallowed up by the deep, and it was no wonder that he could take no interest in the works that were going on. Mrs. Barnett kept up a good heart through it all. She encouraged her comrades in their work, and took her share in it, as if she had still a future to look forward to. Seeing what an interest Mrs. Joliffe took in her plants— She joined her every day in the garden. There was now a fine crop of sorrel and scurvy-grass, thanks to the corporal's unwearying exertions to keep off the birds of every kind, which congregated by hundreds. The taming of the reindeer had been quite successful. There were now a good many young, and little Michael had been partly brought up on milk of the mothers. There were now some thirty head in the herd, which grazed near the fort, and a supply of the herbage on which they fed was dried and laid up for the winter. These useful animals, which are easily domesticated, were already quite familiar with all the colonists, and did not go far from the encampment. Some of them were used in sledges to carry timber backwards and forwards. A good many reindeer, still wild, fell into the trap halfway between the fort and Port Barnet. It will be remembered that a large bear was once taken in it, but nothing of the kind occurred this season. None fell victims but the reindeer, whose flesh was salted and laid by for future use. Twenty at least were taken, which in the ordinary course of things would have gone down to the south in the winter. One day, however, a reindeer trap suddenly became useless in consequence of the conformation of the soil. After visiting it as usual, the hunter Marlborough approached Hobson and said to him in a significant tone i have just paid my daily visit to the reindeer trap sir well Marborough, i hope you have been as successful to-day as yesterday and have caught a couple of reindeer hobson replied no no sir replied Marborough with some embarrassment your trap has not yielded its ordinary contingent then no sir and if any animal had fallen in it would certainly have been drowned drowned cried the lieutenant looking at the hunter, with an anxious expression. "'Yes, sir,' replied Marbra, looking attentively at his superior. "'The pit is full of water.' "'Ah,' said Hobson, in the tone of a man who attached no importance to that. "'You know your pit was partly hollowed out of ice. Its walls have melted with the heat of the sun, and then—' "'Beg pardon for interrupting you, sir,' said Marlborough. "'But the water cannot have been produced by the melting of ice.' "'Why not, Marlborough?' "'Because if it came from ice, it would be sweet. "'As you explained to me once before, "'now the water in our pit is salt.' "'Master of himself as he was, "'Hobson could not help changing countenance slightly, "'and he had not a word to say. "'Besides,' added Marbra, "'I wanted to sound the trench to see how deep the water was, "'and to my great surprise, "'I can tell you I could not find the bottom.' "'Well, Marbra, replied Hobson hastily, there is nothing so wonderful in that. Some fracture of the soil has established a communication between the sea and the trap. So don't be uneasy about it, my brave fellow, but leave the trap alone for the present, and be content with setting snares near the fort. Marlborough touched his cap respectfully, and turned on his heel, but not before he had given his chief a searching glance. Hobson remained very thoughtful for a few moments. Marburg's tidings were of grave importance. It was evident that the bottom of the trench, gradually melted by the warm waters of the sea, had given way. Hobson at once called the sergeant, and having acquainted him with the incident, they went together, unnoticed by their companions, to the beach at the foot of Cape Bathurst, where they had made the benchmarks. They examined them carefully and found that since they last did so, the floating island had sunk six inches. "'We are sinking gradually,' murmured Sergeant Long. "'The ice is wearing away.' "'Oh, for the winter, the winter!' cried Hobson, stamping his foot upon the ground. "'But as yet, alas, there is no sign of the approach of the cold season. "'The thermometer maintained a mean height of fifty-nine degrees Fahrenheit, "'and during the few hours of the night the column of mercury scarcely went down three degrees.' Preparations for the approaching winter went on apace, and there was really nothing wanting to Fort Hope, although it had not been revictualled by Captain Creventy's detachment. The long hours of the Arctic night might be awaited in perfect security. The stores were, of course, carefully husbanded. There still remained plenty of spirits, only small quantities having been consumed, and there was a good stock of biscuits, which once gone could not be replaced fresh venison and salt meat were to be had in abundance and with some antiscorbutic vegetables the diet was mostly healthy and all the members of the little colony were well a good deal of timber was cut in the woods clothing the eastern slopes of lake barnet many were the birch trees pines and firs which fell beneath the axe of mcnab and were dragged to the house by the tamed reindeer the carpenter did not spare the little forest although he cut his wood judiciously, for he never dreamt that timber might fail him, imagining as he did Victoria Island to be a peninsula, and knowing the districts near Cape Michael to be rich in different species of trees. Many a time did the unconscious carpenter congratulate his lieutenant on having chosen a spot so favoured by heaven. Woods, game, furred animals, a lagoon teeming with fish— Plenty of herbs for the animals, and, as Corporal Joliffe would have added, double pay for the men. Was not Cape Bathurst a corner of privileged land, the like of which was not to be found in the whole Arctic region? Truly Hobson was a favorite of heaven, and ought to return thanks to Providence every day for the discovery of this unique spot. Ah, McNab, you little knew how you wrung the heart of your master when you talked in that strain. The manufacture of winter garments was not neglected in the factory. Mrs. Barnett, Madge, Mrs. McNabb, Mrs. Ray, and Mrs. Joliffe, when she could leave her fires, were alike indefatigable. Mrs. Barnett knew that they would all have to leave the fort in the depth of winter, and was determined that every one should be warmly clothed. They would have to face the bitterest cold for a good many days during the polar night, "'if Victoria Island should halt far from the continent. "'Boots and clothes ought indeed to be strong and well made, "'for crossing some hundreds of miles under such circumstances. "'Mrs. Barnett and Madge devoted all their energies to the matter in hand, "'and the furs, which they knew it would be impossible to save, "'were turned to good account.' they were used double so that the soft hair was both inside and outside of the clothes, and when wearing them the whole party would be as richly attired as the grandest princesses, or the most wealthy ladies. Those, not in the secret, were rather surprised at the free use made of the company's property. But Hobson's authority was not to be questioned, and really, Martins, Polecat's, muskrats, beavers, and foxes, multiplied with such rapidity near the fort, that all the furs used could easily be replaced by a few shots, or the setting of a few traps. And when Mrs. McNabb saw the beautiful ermine coat which had been made for her baby, her delight was unbounded, and she no longer wondered at anything. So passed the days until the middle of the month of August. The weather continued fine, and any mists which were gathered on the horizon were quickly dispersed by the sunbeams every day hobson took the bearings taking care however to go some distance from the fort that suspicions might not be aroused and he also visited different parts of the island and was reassured by finding that no important changes appeared to be taking place on the sixteenth august Victoria Island was situated in 167 degrees 27 minutes west longitude, and 70 degrees 49 minutes north latitude. It had therefore drifted slightly to the south, but without getting any nearer to the American coast, which curved considerably. The distance traversed by the island since the fracture of the Isthmus or rather, since the last thaw, could not be less than eleven or twelve hundred miles to the west. But what was this distance compared to the vast extent of the ocean? Had not boats been known to be drifted several thousands of miles by currents? Was not this the case with the English ship Resolute, or the American brig Advance, and with the Fox— All of which were carried along upon ice fields until the winter arrested their advance. End of chapter five, part two, chapter six of the fur country. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Fur Country by Jules Fern Part two CHAPTER six ten Days of Tempest From the seventeenth to the twentieth August the weather continued fine, and the temperature moderate. The mists on the horizon were not resolved into clouds, and altogether the weather was exceptionally beautiful for such an elevated position. It will be readily understood, however, that Hobson could take no pleasure in the fineness of the climate. On the 21st August, however, the barometer gave notice of an approaching change. The column of mercury suddenly fell considerably. The sun was completely hidden at the moment of culmination, and Tobson was unable to take his bearings. The next day the wind changed, and blew strongly from the northwest, torrents of rain falling at intervals. Meanwhile, however, the temperature did not change to any sensible extent the thermometer remaining at fifty-four degrees Fahrenheit. Fortunately the proposed works were now all finished, and McNabb had completed the carcass of his boat, which was planked and ribbed. Hunting might now be neglected a little, as the stores were complete, which was fortunate, for the weather became very bad. The wind was high, the rain incessant, and thick fogs rendered it impossible to go beyond the encant of the fort. What do you think of this change in the weather, lieutenant? inquired Mrs. Barnett, on the morning of the 27th August. Might it not be in our favour? I should not like to be sure of it, madam, replied Hobson. But anything is better for us than the magnificent weather we have lately had, during which the sun made the waters warmer and warmer. Then, too— the wind from the northwest is so very strong that it may perhaps drive us nearer to the American continent. Unfortunately, observed Long, we can't take our bearings every day now. It's impossible to see either sun, moon, or stars in this fog. Fancy attempting to take an altitude now. "'We shall see well enough to recognize America if we get anywhere near it,' said Mrs. Barnett. "'Whatever land we approach will be welcome.' it will most likely be some part of russian america probably western alaska you are right madam said hobson for unfortunately in the whole arctic ocean there is not an island an islet or even a rock to which we could fasten our vessel well rejoined mrs Barnett, why should not our conveyance take us straight to the coasts of asia might not the currents carry us past the opening of bering strait and land us on the shores of siberia no, madam, no, replied Hobson. Our ice field would soon meet the Kamchatka current, and be carried by it to the northwest. It is more likely, however, that this wind will drive us towards the shores of Russian America. We must keep watch, then, said Mrs. Barnett, and ascertain our position as soon as possible. We shall indeed keep watch, replied Hobson, although this fog is very much against us. If we should be driven on to the coast— the shock will be felt, even if we cannot see. Let's hope the island will not fall to pieces in this storm, that is, at present, our principal danger. Well, when it comes we shall see what there is to be done, and meanwhile we must wait patiently. Of course this conversation was not held in the public room, where the soldiers and women worked together, it was in their own room, with the window looking out on the court, that Mrs. Barnett received visitors. It was almost impossible to see indoors even in the daytime, and the wind could be heard rushing by outside like an avalanche. Fortunately Cape Bathurst protected the house from the northeast winds, but the sand and earth from its summit were hurled down upon the roof with a noise like the pattering of hail. McNab began to feel fresh uneasiness about his chimneys, which it was absolutely necessary to keep in good order. With the roaring of the wind was mingled that of the sea, as its huge waves broke upon the beach. The storm had become a hurricane. In spite of the fury of the gale, Hobson determined on the morning of the 28th of August to climb to the summit of Cape Bathurst, in order to examine the state of the horizon the sea and the sky he therefore wrapped himself up taking care to have nothing about him likely to give hold the wind and set out he got to the foot of the cape without much difficulty the sand and earth blinded him it is true but protected by the cliff he had not as yet actually faced the wind The fatigue began when he attempted to climb the almost perpendicular sides of the promontory, but by clutching at the tufts of herbs with which they were covered he managed to get to the top. But there the fury of the gales was such that he could neither remain standing nor seated. He was therefore forced to fling himself upon his face behind the little coppice and cling to some shrubs, only raising his head and shoulders above the ground." THE APPEARANCE OF SEA AND SKY WAS INDEED TERRIBLE. THE SPRAY DASHED OVER THE LIEUTENANT'S HEAD, AND HALF A MILE FROM THE CAPE, WATER AND CLOUDS WERE CONFOUNDED TOGETHER IN A THICK MIST. LOW JAGGED RAIN-CLOUDS WERE CHASED ALONG THE HEAVENS WITH GIDDY RAPIDITY, AND HEAVY MASSES OF VAPOUR WERE PILED UPON THE ZENITH. EVERY NOW AND THEN AN AWFUL STILLNESS FELL UPON THE LAND and the only sounds were the breaking of the surf upon the beach and the roaring of the angry billows. But then the tempest recommenced with redoubled fury, and Hobson felt the cape tremble to its foundations. Sometimes the rain poured down with such violence that it resembled grape-shot. It was indeed a terrible hurricane from the very worst quarter of the heavens, this north-east wind might blow for a long time, and cause all manner of havoc. Yet Hobson, who would generally have grieved over the destruction around him, did not complain. On the contrary, he rejoiced, for if, as he hoped, the island held together, it must be driven to the southwest west by this wind, so much more powerful than the currents. And the southwest meant land, hope, safety. Yes, for his own sake— and for that of all with him, he hoped that the hurricane would last until it had flung them upon the land, no matter where. That which would have been fatal to a ship was the best thing that could happen to the floating island. For a quarter of an hour, Hobson remained crouching upon the ground, clutching at the shrubs like a drowning man at a spar, lashed by the wind, drenched by the rain and the spray. "'struggling to estimate all the chances of safety the storm might afford him. "'At the end of that time he let himself slide down the cape "'and fought his way to Fort Hope. "'Hobson's first care was to tell his comrades "'that the hurricane was not yet at its height, "'and that it would probably last a long time yet. "'He announced these tidings with the manner of one bringing good news, "'and everyone looked at him in astonishment.' Their chief officer really seemed to take a delight in the fury of the elements. On the thirtieth Hobson again braved the tempest, not this time climbing the cape, but going down to the beach. What was his joy at noticing some long weeds floating on the top of the waves, a kind which did not grow on Victoria Island. Christopher Columbus's delight was not greater when he saw the seaweed which told him of the proximity of land. The lieutenant hurried back to the fort and told Mrs. Barnard and Sergeant Long of his discovery. He had a good mind to tell every one the whole truth now, but a strange presentiment kept him silent. The occupants of the fort had plenty to amuse them in the long days of compulsory confinement. They went on improving the inside of the various buildings and dug trenches in the court to carry away the rainwater. McNab. A hammer in one hand and a nail in the other, was always busy at a job, in some corner or another, and nobody took much note of the tempest outside in the daytime. But at night it was impossible to sleep. The wind beat upon the buildings like a battering-ram. Between the house and the cape sometimes whirled a huge waterspout of extraordinary dimensions. The planks cracked, the beams seemed about to separate— and there was the danger of the whole structure tumbling down. McNabb and his men lived in a state of perpetual dread, and had to be continually on the watch. Meanwhile Hobson was uneasy about the stability of the island itself, rather than that of the house upon it. The tempest became so violent, and the sea so rough, that there was really a danger of the dislocation of the ice-field. IT SEEMED IMPOSSIBLE FOR IT TO RESIST MUCH LONGER, DIMINISHED AS IT WAS IN THICKNESS, AND SUBJECT TO THE PERPETUAL ACTION OF THE WAVES. IT IS TRUE THAT ITS INHABITANTS DID NOT FEEL ANY MOTION, ON ACCOUNT OF ITS VAST EXTENT, BUT IT SUFFERED FROM IT none the less. THE POINT AT ISSUE WAS SIMPLE. WOULD THE ISLAND LAST UNTIL IT WAS FLUNG UPON THE COAST, OR WOULD IT FALL TO PIECES BEFORE IT TOUCHED FIRM GROUND? There could be no doubt that thus far it had resisted. As the lieutenant explained to Mrs. Barnett, had it already been broken, had the ice-field already divided into a number of islets, the occupants of the fort must have noticed it, for the different pieces would have been small enough to be affected by the motion of the sea, and the people on any one of them would have been pitched about like passengers on a boat. This was not the case, and in his daily observations, Lieutenant Hobson, had noticed no movement whatever, not so much as a trembling of the island, which appeared as firm and motionless as when it was still connected by its isthmus with the mainland. But the breaking up, which had not yet taken place, might happen at any minute. Hobson was most anxious to ascertain whether Victoria Island, driven by the northwest wind out of the current, had approached the continent. Everything, in fact, depended on this, which was their last chance of safety. But without sun, moon, or stars, instruments were, of course, useless, as no observations could be taken, and the exact position of the island could not be determined. If, then, they were approaching the land, they would only know it when the land came in sight, and Hobson's only means of ascertaining anything in time to be of any service was to get to the south of his dangerous dominions. The position of Victoria Island with regard to the cardinal points had not sensibly altered all the time. Cape Bathurst still pointed to the north, as it did when it was the advanced post of North America. It was therefore evident that if Victoria Island should come alongside the continent, it would touch it with its southern side. The communication would, in a word, be re-established by means of the broken isthmus, It was, therefore, imperative to ascertain what was going on in that direction. Hobson determined to go to Cape Michael, however terrible the storm might be, but he meant to keep the real motive of his reconnaissance a secret from his companions. Sergeant Long was to accompany him. About four o'clock p.m., on the 31st August, Hobson sent for the sergeant in his own room, that they might arrange together for all eventualities. "'Sergeant Long,' he began, "'it is necessary that we should, without delay, ascertain the position of Victoria Island, and, above all, whether this wind has, as I hope, driven it near to the American continent.' "'I quite agree with you, sir,' replied Long, "'and the sooner we find out, the better. But it will necessitate our going down to the south of the island.' "'I am ready, sir. I know, Sergeant, that you are always ready to do your duty. But you will not go alone. Two of us ought to go, that we might be able to let our comrades know if any land is in sight. And besides, I must see for myself. We will go together.' "'When you like, Lieutenant. Just when you think best.' "'We will start this evening at nine o'clock, when everybody else has gone to bed.' "'Yes, they would all want to come with us,' said Long, "'and they must not know why we go so far from the factory.' "'No, they must not know,' replied Hobson. "'And if I can, I will keep the knowledge of our awful situation from them until the end.' "'It is agreed, then, sir?' "'Yes. You will take a tinder-box and some touchwood.' "'Footnote. A fungus used as tinder. Polyporus ignarius. "'With you. So that we can make a signal, if necessary.' "'if land is in sight in the south, for instance. "'Yes, sir. "'We shall have a rough journey, sergeant. "'What does that matter, sir? "'But by the way, the lady?' "'I don't think I shall tell her. "'She would want to go with us.' "'And she could not,' said the sergeant. "'A woman could not battle with such a gale. "'Just see how its fury is increasing at this moment.' "'Indeed the house was rocking, to such an extent "'that it seemed likely to be torn from its foundations.' No, said Hobson. Courageous as she is, she could not. She ought not to accompany us. But on second thought, it will be best to tell her of our project. She ought to know, in case any accident should befall us. Yes, replied Long. We ought not to keep anything from her. And if we do not come back— At nine o'clock, then, Sergeant. At nine o'clock. And with a military salute, Sergeant Long retired— A few minutes later Hobson was telling Mrs. Barnett of his scheme. As he expected, the brave woman insisted on accompanying him, and was quite ready to face the tempest. Hobson did not dissuade her by dwelling on the dangers of the expedition. He merely said that her presence was necessary at the fort during his absence, and that her remaining would set his mind at ease. If any accident should happen to him, it would be a comfort to know that she would take his place." mrs Barnett understood and said no more about going but only urged hobson not to risk himself unnecessarily to remember that he was the chief officer that his life was not his own but necessary to the safety of all the lieutenant promised to be as prudent as possible but added that the examination of the south of the island must be made at once and he would make it the next day mrs Barnett. Merely told her companions that the lieutenant and sergeant had gone to make a final reconnaissance before the winter set in. End of chapter six, part two, chapter seven of the fur country. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Fur Country by Jules Verne. Part two. Chapter seven. A fire and a cry. The lieutenant and the sergeant spent the evening in the large room of the fort, where all were assembled except the astronomer, who still remained shut up in his cabin. The men were busy over their various occupations, some cleaning their arms, others mending or sharpening their tools. The women were stitching away industriously and mrs paulina Barnett was reading aloud but she was often interrupted not only by the noise of the wind which shook the walls of the house like a battering-ram but by the cries of the baby corporal joliffe who had undertaken to amuse him had enough to do the young gentleman had ridden upon his playmate's knees, until they were worn out, and the corporal at last put the indefatigable little cavalier on the large table, where he rolled about to his heart's content until he fell asleep. At eight o'clock prayers were read as usual, the lamps were extinguished, and all retired to rest. When every one was asleep, Hobson and Long crept cautiously across the large room, and gained the passage, where they found Mrs. Barnett, who wished to press their hands once more. "'Till to-morrow,' she said to the lieutenant. "'Yes,' replied Hobson. "'To-morrow, madam, without fail.' "'But if you are delayed—' "'You must wait patiently for us,' replied the lieutenant, "'for if, in examining the southern horizon, we should see a fire—' Which is not unlikely this dark night, we should know that we were near the coasts of New Georgia, and then it would be desirable for me to ascertain our position by daylight. In fact, we may be away forty eight hours. If, however, we can get to Cape Michael before midnight, we shall be back at the fort tomorrow evening. So wait patiently, madam, and believe that we shall incur no unnecessary risk. But added the lady, suppose you don't get back tomorrow? Suppose you are away more than two days? Then we shall not return at all, replied Hobson simply. The door was opened. Mrs. Barnett closed it behind the lieutenant and his companion, and went back to her own room, where Madge awaited her, feeling anxious and thoughtful. Hobson and Long made their way across the inner court, through a whirlwind, which nearly knocked them down. But clinging to each other, and leaning on their iron-bound staffs, They reached the postern gates, and set out between the hills and the eastern bank of the lagoon. A faint twilight enabled them to see their way. The moon, which was new the night before, would not appear above the horizon, and there was nothing to lessen the gloom of the darkness, which would, however, last but a few hours longer. The wind and rain were as violent as ever. The lieutenant and his companions wore impervious boots and waterproof cloaks, well pulled in at the waist, and the hood completely covering their heads. Thus protected, they got along at a rapid pace, for the wind was behind them, and sometimes drove them on faster than they cared to go. Talking was quite out of the question, and they did not attempt it, for they were deafened by the hurricane, and out of breath with the buffeting they received. Hobson did not mean to follow the coast— the windings of which would have taken him a long way around and have brought him face to face with the wind which swept over the sea with nothing to break its fury his idea was to cut in a straight line from cape bathurst to cape michael and he was provided with a pocket compass with which to ascertain his bearings he hoped by this means to cross the ten or eleven miles between him and his goal just before the twilight faded and gave place to the two hours of real darkness bent almost double, with rounded shoulders and stooping heads, the two pressed on. As long as they kept near the lake, they did not meet the gale full face. The little hills, crowned with trees, afforded them some protection. The wind howled fearfully as it bent and distorted the branches, almost tearing the trunks up by the roots. But it partly exhausted its strength, and even the rain when it reached the explorers was converted into impalpable mist. "'so that about four miles they did not suffer half as much as they expected to. "'But when they reached the southern skirts of the wood, where the hills disappeared, "'and there were neither trees nor rising ground, the wind swept along with an awful force, "'and involuntarily they paused for a moment. "'They were still six miles from Cape Michael. "'We're going to have a bad time of it,' shouted Lieutenant Hobson in the sergeant's ear. "'Yes, the wind and rain will conspire to give us a good beating,' answered Long. "'I'm afraid that now and then we shall have hail as well,' answered Hobson. "'It won't be as deadly as Grapeshot,' replied Long coolly. "'And we have both been through that, and so forwards. "'Forwards, my brave comrade!' "'It was then ten o'clock. "'The twilight was fading away, dying as if drowned in the mists "'or quenched by the rain and wind.' There was still, however, some light, and the lieutenant struck his flint, and consulted his compass, passing a piece of burning touchwood over it, and then, drawing his cloak more closely around him, he plunged after the sergeant across the unprotected plain. At the first step, both were flung violently to the ground, but they managed to scramble up, and clinging to each other with their backs bent like two old crippled peasant, they struck into a kind of ambling trot. There was a kind of awful grandeur in the storm, to which neither was insensible. Jagged masses of mist and ragged rain-clouds swept along the ground. The loose earth and sand were whirled into the air, and flung down again like grape-shot, and the lips of Hobson and his companions were wet with salt spray, although the sea was two or three miles distant at least. During the rare brief pauses in the gale they stopped and took breath, whilst the lieutenant ascertained their position as accurately as possible. The tempest increased as the night advanced. The air and water seemed to be absolutely confounded together, and low down on the horizon was formed one of those fearful waterspouts which can overthrow houses, tear up forests, and which the vessels, whose safety they threatened, attack with artillery it really seemed as if the ocean itself was being torn from its bed and flung over the devoted little island hobson could not help wondering how it was that the ice-field which supported it was not broken in a hundred places in this violent convulsion of the sea the roaring of which could be distinctly heard where he stood presently long who was a few steps in advance stopped suddenly and turning round, managed to make the lieutenant hear the broken words. Not that way. Why not? The sea. What? The sea? We cannot possibly have got to the southeast coast. Look, look, lieutenant. It was true. A vast sheet of water was indistinctly visible before them, and large waves were rolling up and breaking at the lieutenant's feet. Hobson again had recourse to his flint, and with the aid of some lighted touchwood, consulted the needle of his compass very carefully. "'No,' he said, "'the sea is farther to the left. "'We have not yet passed the wood between us and Cape Michael.' "'Then it is—' "'It's a fracture of the island,' cried Hobson, "'as both were compelled to fling themselves to the ground before the wind. "'Either a large portion of our land has been broken off and drifted away, "'or a gulf has been made, which we can go around. "'Forwards!' They struggled to their feet, and turned to the right, towards the centre of the island. For about ten minutes they pressed on in silence, fearing, not without reason, that all communication with the south of the island would be found to be cut off. Presently, however, they no longer heard the noise of the breakers. "'It is only a gulf,' screamed Hobson in the sergeant's ear. "'Let us turn around.' And they resumed their original direction towards the south." But both knew only too well that they had a fearful danger to face, for that portion of the island on which they were was evidently cracked for a long distance, and might at any moment separate entirely. Should it do so, under the influence of the waves, they would inevitably be drifted away whither they knew not. Yet they did not hesitate, but plunged into the mist, not even pausing to wonder if they should ever get back. What anxious forebodings must, however, have passed upon the heart of the lieutenant! Could he now hope that the island would hold together until the winter? Had not the inevitable breaking up already commenced? If the wind should not drive them on to the coast, were they not doomed to perish very soon, to be swallowed up by the deep, leaving no trace behind them? What a fearful prospect for all the unconscious inhabitants of the fort! But through it all the two men, upheld by the consciousness of a duty to perform, bravely struggled on against the gale, which nearly tore them to pieces, along the new beach, the foam sometimes bathing their feet, and presently gained the large wood, which shut in Cape Michael. This they would have to cross to get to the coast by the shortest route, and they entered it in complete darkness, the wind thundering among the branches over their heads. Everything seemed to be breaking to pieces around them. The dislocated branches intercepted their passage, and every moment they ran a risk of being crushed beneath a falling tree, or they stumbled over a stump they had not been able to see in the gloom. The noise of the waves on the other side of the wood was a sufficient guide to their steps, and sometimes the furious breakers shook the weakened ground beneath their feet. Holding each other's hands, lest they should lose each other, Supporting each other, and the one helping the other up when he fell over some obstacle, they at last reached the point for which they were bound. But the instant they quitted the shelter of the wood, a perfect whirlwind tore them asunder, and flung them upon the ground. "'Sergeant! sergeant! where are you?' cried Hobson, with all the strength of his lungs. "'Here! here!' roared Long in reply. And creeping on the ground, they struggled to reach each other but it seemed as if a powerful hand riveted them to the spot on which they had fallen, and it was only after many futile efforts that they managed to reach each other. Having done so, they tied their belts together to prevent another separation, and crept along the sand to a little rising ground, crowned by a small clump of pines. Once there, they were a little more protected, and they proceeded to dig themselves a hole in which they crouched in a state of absolute exhaustion and prostration. It was half-past eleven o'clock p.m. For some minutes neither spoke. With eyes half closed, they lay in a kind of torpor, whilst the trees above them bent beneath the wind, and their branches rattled like the bones of a skeleton. But yet again they roused themselves from this fatal lethargy, and a few mouthfuls of rum from the sergeant's flask revived them. "'Let us hope these trees will hold,' at last observed Hobson. "'And that our hole will not blow away with them,' added the sergeant, crouching in the soft sand. "'Well,' said Hobson, "'here we are at last a few feet from Cape Michael, "'and as we came to make observations, let us make them. "'I have a presentiment, sergeant, only a presentiment, remember, "'that we are not far from firm ground.' "'Had the southern horizon been visible?' The two adventurers would have been able to see two-thirds of it from their position, but it was too dark to make out anything, and if the hurricane had indeed driven them within sight of land, they would not be able to see it until daylight, unless a fire should be lighted on the continent. As the lieutenant had told Mrs. Barnett, fishermen often visited that part of North America, which is called New Georgia, and there are a good many small native colonies— the members of which collect the teeth of mammoths, these fossil elephants being very numerous in these latitudes. A few degrees further south, on the island of Sitka, rises New Archangel, the principal settlement in Russian America, and the headquarters of the Russian fur company, whose jurisdiction once extended over the whole of the Aleutian Islands. The shores of the Arctic Ocean are, however, the favourite resort of hunters especially since the Hudson's Bay Company took a lease of the districts formerly in the hands of the Russians, and Hobson, although he knew nothing of the country, was well acquainted with the habits of those who were likely to visit it at this time of the year, and was justified in thinking that he might meet fellow-countrymen, perhaps even members of his own company, or, failing them, some native Indians scouring the coasts. But could the lieutenant— reasonably hope, that Victoria Island had been driven towards the coast? "'Yes, a hundred times yes,' he repeated to the sergeant again and again. For seven days a hurricane has been blowing from the northeast, and although I know that the island is very flat, and there is not much for the wind to take hold of, still all these little hills and woods, spread out like sails, must have felt the influence of the wind, to a certain extent. Moreover, The sea which bears us along feels its power, and large waves are certainly running inshore. It is impossible for us to have remained in the current which was dragging us to the west. We must have been driven out of it, and towards the south. Last time we took our bearings we were two hundred miles from the coast, and in seven days. Your reasonings are very just, lieutenant, replied the sergeant, and I feel that whether the winds help us or not, God will not forsake us. It cannot be His will that so many unfortunate creatures should perish, and I put my trust in Him. The two talked on in broken sentences, making each other hear above the roaring of the storm, and struggling to pierce the gloom which closed them in on every side. But they could see nothing, not a ray of light, broke the thick darkness. About half-past one a.m., The hurricane ceased for a few minutes, whilst the fury of the sea seemed to be redoubled, and the large waves, lashed into foam, broke over each other with a roar like thunder. Suddenly Hobson, seizing his companion's arm, shouted, Sergeant, do you hear? What? The noise of the sea. Of course I do, sir, replied Long, listening more attentively. And the sound of the breakers seems to me not. Not exactly the same, isn't it, sergeant? Listen, listen. It is like the sound of surf. It seems as if the waves were breaking against rocks. Hobson and the sergeant now listened intently. The monotonous sounds of the waves, dashing against each other in the offing, was certainly exchanged for the regular rolling sound produced by the breaking of water against a hard body. They heard the reverberating echoes, which told of the neighbourhood of rocks, and they knew that along the whole of the coast of their island there was not a single stone, and nothing more sonorous than the earth and sand of which it was composed. Could they have been deceived? The sergeant tried to rise to listen better, but he was immediately flung down by the hurricane, which recommenced with renewed violence. The lull was over, and again the noise of the waves was drowned, in the shrill whistling of the wind, and the peculiar echo could no longer be made out. The anxiety of the two explorers will readily be imagined. They again crouched down in their hole, doubting whether it would not perhaps be prudent to leave even this shelter, for they felt the sand giving way beneath them, and the pines cracking at their very roots. They persevered, however, in gazing towards the south, Every nerve strained to the utmost in the effort to distinguish objects through the darkness. The first grey of twilight of the dawn might soon be expected to appear, and a little before half past two a m, Long suddenly exclaimed, I see it! What? A fire! A fire! Yes, there, over there! And he pointed to the southwest. Was he mistaken? No for Hobson also made out a faint glimmer in the direction indicated. "'Yes,' he cried. "'Yes, sergeant, a fire. There is land there.' "'Unless it is a fire on board ship,' replied Long. "'A ship at sea in this weather?' exclaimed Hobson. "'Impossible. No, no, there is land there. Land, I tell you, a few miles from us.' "'Well, let us make a signal. "'Yes, sergeant, we will reply to the fire on the mainland by a fire on our island.' Of course neither Hobson nor Long had a torch, but above their heads rose resinous pines, distorted by the hurricane. "'Your flint, sergeant,' said Hobson. Long at once struck his flint, lighted the touchwood, and creeping along the sand, climbed to the foot of the thicket of firs, where he was soon joined by the lieutenant. There was plenty of deadwood about, and they piled it up at the stems of the trees.' "'set fire to it, and soon the wind helping them. "'They had the satisfaction of seeing the whole thicket in a blaze. "Ha!" said Hobson. "'As we saw their fire, they will see ours.' "'The firs burnt with a lurid glare, like a large torch. "'The dried resin in the old trunks aided the conflagration, "'and they were rapidly consumed. "'At last the crackling ceased, the flames died away, and all was darkness.' Hobson and Long looked in vain for an answering fire nothing was to be seen for ten minutes they watched hoping against hope and were just beginning to despair when suddenly a cry was heard a distinct cry for help it was a human voice and it came from the sea Hobson and Long wild with eager anxiety let themselves slide down to the shore the cry was not however repeated the daylight was now gradually beginning to appear, and the violence of the tempest seemed to be decreasing. Soon it was light enough for the horizon to be examined. But there was no land in sight. Sea and sky were still blended in one unbroken circle. End of chapter 7 Part 2 Chapter 8 of The Fir Country this is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Fur Country by Jules Verne, Chapter Eight. Mrs. Paulina Barnett's Excursion. The whole morning, Hobson and Sergeant Long wandered about the coast. The weather was much improved. The rain had ceased, and the wind had veered round to the southeast, with extraordinary suddenness, without, unfortunately, decreasing in violence, causing fresh anxiety to the lieutenant, who could no longer hope to reach the mainland. The southeast wind would drive the wandering island further from the continent, and fling it into the dangerous currents which must drift it to the north of the Arctic Ocean. How could they even be sure that they had really approached the coast during the awful night just over? Might it not have been merely a fancy of the lieutenants? The air was now clear, and they could look round a radius of several miles. Yet there was nothing in the least resembling land within sight. Might they not adopt the sergeant's suggestion that a ship had passed the island during the night, that the fire and cry were alike signals of sailors in distress? and if it had been a vessel, must it not have foundered in such a storm? Whatever the explanation, there was no sign of a wreck to be seen either in the offing or on the beach, and the waves now driven along by the wind from the land were large enough to have overwhelmed any vessel. "'Well, lieutenant,' said Sergeant Long, "'what is to be done?' "'We must remain upon our island,' replied the lieutenant pressing his hand to his brow. We must remain on our island and wait for winter. It alone can save us. It was now midday, and Hobson, anxious to get back to Fort Hope before the evening, at once turned towards Cape Bathurst. The wind, being now on their backs, helped them along as it had done before. They could not help feeling very uneasy, as they were naturally afraid that the island might have separated into two parts in the storm the gulf observed the night before might have spread further and if so they would be cut off from their friends they soon reached the wood they had crossed the night before numbers of trees were lying on the ground with some broken stems others torn up by the roots from the soft soil which had not afforded them sufficient support the few which remained erect were stripped of their leaves their naked branches creaked and moaned as the southeast wind swept over them, two miles beyond this desolated forest. The wanderers arrived at the edge of the gulf they had seen the night before, without being able to judge of its extent. They examined it carefully and found that it was about fifty feet wide, cutting the coastline straight across near Cape Michael and what was formerly Fort Burnett forming a kind of estuary running more than a mile and a half inland. If the sea should again become rough in a fresh storm, this gulf would widen more and more. Just as Hobson approached the beach, he saw a large piece of ice separate from the island and float away. Ah! murmured Long, that is the danger. Both then turned hurriedly to the west, and walked as fast as they could round the huge gulf, making direct for Fort Hope. They noticed no other changes, by the way, and towards four o'clock they crossed the court, and found all their comrades at their usual occupations. Hobson told his men that he had wished once more, before the winter, to see if there were any signs of the approach of Captain Creventy's convoy, and that his expedition had been fruitless. "'Then, sir—' "'observed Marborough. "'I suppose we must give up all idea "'of seeing our comrades from Fort Reliance "'for this year, at least.' "'I think you must,' replied Hobson simply, re entering the public room. "'Mrs. Barnett and Madge "'were told of the two chief events of the exploration, "'the fire and the cry. "'Hobson was quite sure "'that neither he nor the sergeant were mistaken. "'The fire had really been seen, "'the cry had really been heard.' and after a long consultation every one came to the conclusion that a ship in distress had passed within sight during the night and that the island had not approached the american coast the southeast wind quickly chased away the clouds and mists so that hobson hoped to be able to take his bearings the next day the night was colder and a fine snow fell which quickly covered the ground this first sign of winter was hailed with delight by all who knew of the peril of their situation. On the 2nd September the sky gradually became free from vapours of all kinds, and the sun again appeared. Patiently the lieutenant awaited its culmination. At noon he took the latitude, and two hours later a calculation of hour angles gave him the longitude. The following were the results obtained. Latitude 70 degrees 57 minutes longitude, one hundred and seventy degrees, thirty minutes. So that, in spite of the violent hurricane, the island had remained in much the same latitude, although it had been drifted somewhat further west. They were now abreast of Bering Strait, but four hundred miles at least, north of Cape's East and Prince of Wales, which jut out on either side at the narrowest part of the passage. The situation was, therefore, more dangerous than ever, as the island was daily getting nearer to the dangerous Kamchatka current, which, if it once seized it in its rapid waters, might carry it far away to the north. Its fate would now soon be decided. It would either stop where the two currents met, and there be shut in by the ice of the approaching winter, or it would be drifted away and lost in the solitudes of the remote Hyperborean regions— Hobson was painfully moved on ascertaining the true state of things, and being anxious to conceal his emotion, he shut himself up in his own room, and did not appear again that day. With his chart before him he racked his brains to find some way out of the difficulties with which he was beset. The temperature fell some degrees further the same day, and the mists, which had collected above the southeastern horizon the day before, resolved themselves into snow during the night, so that the next day the white carpet was two inches thick. Winter was coming at last. On September 3rd Mrs. Barnett resolved to go a few miles along the coast towards Cape Eskimo. She wished to see for herself the changes lately produced— If she had mentioned her project to the lieutenant, he would certainly have offered to accompany her, but she did not wish to disturb him, and decided to go without him, taking Madge with her. There was really nothing to fear. The only formidable animals, the bears, seemed to have quite deserted the island after the earthquake, and two women might, without danger, venture on a walk of a few hours without an escort." Madge agreed at once to Mrs. Barnett's proposal, and, without a word to any one, they set out at eight o'clock a m provided with an ice-chisel, a flask of spirits, and a wallet of provisions. After leaving Cape Bathurst, they turned to the west; the sun was already dragging its slow course along the horizon for at this time of year, it would only be a few degrees above it at its culmination, but its oblique rays were clear and powerful, and the snow was already melting here and there beneath their influence. The coast was alive, with flocks of birds of many kinds. Ptarmigans, guillemots puffins, wild geese and ducks of every variety fluttered about, uttering their various cries, skimming the surface of the sea or of the lagoon, according as their tastes led them to prefer salt or fresh water mrs Barnett had now a capital opportunity of seeing how many furred animals haunted the neighbourhood of fort hope martins earmines muskrats and foxes were numerous and the magazines of the factory might easily have been filled with their skins but what good would that be now the inoffensive creatures knowing that hunting was suspended went and came fearlessly venturing close up to the palisade and becoming tamer every day their instinct doubtless told them that they and their old enemies were alike prisoners on the island and a common danger bound them together it struck mrs Barnett as strange that the two enthusiastic hunters marlborough and sabine should obey the lieutenant's orders to spare the furred animals without remonstrance or complaint and appeared not even to wish to shoot the valuable game around them it was true the foxes and others had not yet assumed their winter robes, but this was not enough to explain the strange indifference of the two hunters. Whilst walking at a good pace and talking over their strange situation, Mrs. Barnett and Madge carefully noted the peculiarities of the sandy coast. The ravages recently made by the sea were distinctly visible. Fresh landslips enabled them to see new fractures in the ice distinctly the strand fretted away in many places had sunk to an enormous extent and the waves washed along a level beach when the perpendicular shores had once checked their advance it was evident that parts of the island were now only on a level with the ocean oh madge exclaimed mrs Barnett, pointing to the long smooth tracks on which the curling waves broke in rapid succession "'Our situation has indeed become aggravated by the awful storm. "'It is evident that the level of the whole island is gradually becoming lower. "'It is now only a question of time. "'Will the winter come soon enough to save us? "'Everything will depend on that.' "'The winter will come, my dear girl,' replied Madge, with her usual unshaken confidence. "'We have already had two falls of snow.' "'Ice is beginning to accumulate, and God will send it us. In time, I feel sure.' "'You are right, Madge. We must have faith,' said Mrs. Barnett. "'We women, who do not trouble ourselves about the scientific reasons for physical phenomena, can hope, when men, who are better informed, perhaps despair. "'This is one of our blessings, which our lieutenant, unfortunately, does not share. "'He sees the significance of facts, he reflects, he calculates— He reckons up the time still remaining to us, and I see that he is beginning to lose all hope. "'He is a brave and energetic man for all that,' replied Madge. "'Yes,' added Mrs. Barnett, "'and if it be in the power of man to save us, he will do it.' By nine o'clock the two women had walked four miles. They were often obliged to go inland for some little distance, to avoid parts of the coast already invaded by the sea." Here and there the waves had encroached half a mile beyond the former high-water line, and the thickness of the ice-field had been considerably reduced. There was danger that it would soon yield in many places, and that new bays would be formed all along the coast. As they got further from the fort, Mrs. Barnett noticed that the number of furred animals decreased considerably. The poor creatures evidently, felt more secure near a human habitation. The only formidable animals which had not been led, by instinct, to escape in time from the dangerous island were a few wolves, savage beasts, which even a common danger did not conciliate. Mrs. Barnett and Madge saw several wandering about on the plains, but they did not approach, and soon disappeared behind the hills on the south of the lagoon. "'What will become of all these imprisoned animals?' said Madge, "'when all food fails them, and they are famished with hunger in the winter.' "'They will not be famished in a hurry, Madge,' replied Mrs. Barnett, "'and we shall have nothing to fear from them. "'All the martins, earmines, and polar hares which we spare "'will fall an easy prey to them. "'That is not our danger. "'The brittle ground beneath our feet, "'which may at any moment give way, is our real peril. "'Only look how the sea is advancing here.' It already covers half the plain, and the waves, still comparatively warm, are eating away our island above and below at the same time. If the cold does not stop it very soon, the sea will shortly join the lake, and we shall lose our lagoon, as we lost our river and our port. "'Well, if that should happen, it will indeed be an irreparable misfortune,' exclaimed Madge. "'Why?' asked Mrs. Barnett, looking inquiringly at her companion. "'Because we shall have no more fresh water,' replied Madge. "'Oh, we shall not want for fresh water, Madge,' said Mrs. Barnett. "'The rain, the snow, the ice, the icebergs of the ocean, "'the very ice-field on which we float, will supply us with that. "'No, no, that is not our danger.' About ten o'clock Mrs. Barnett and Madge had readied the rising ground above Cape Eskimo, but at least two miles inland, for they had found it impossible to follow the coast— worn away as it was by the sea. Being rather tired with the many detours they had to make, they decided to rest a few minutes before setting off on their return to Fort Hope. A little hill, crowned by a clump of birch-trees and a few shrubs, afforded a pleasant shelter, and a bank, covered with yellow moss, from which the snow had melted, served them as a seat. The little wallet was opened, and they shared their simple repast, like sisters. Half an hour later, Mrs. Barnett proposed that they should climb along the promontory to the sea, and find out the exact state of Cape Eskimo. She was anxious to know if the point of it had resisted the storm, and Madge declared herself ready to follow, her dear girl, wherever she went, but at the same time reminded her that they were eight or nine miles from Cape Bathurst already— "'and that they must not make Lieutenant Hobson uneasy by too long an absence. "'But some presentiment made Mrs. Barnett insist upon doing as she proposed. "'And she was right as the event proved. "'It would only delay them half an hour after all. "'They had not gone a quarter of a mile before Mrs. Barnett stopped suddenly "'and pointed to some clear and regular impressions upon the snow.' these marks must have been made within the last nine or ten hours or the last fall of snow would have covered them over what animal has passed along here i wonder said madge it was not an animal said mrs Barnett, bending down to examine the marks more closely not a quadruped certainly for its four feet would have left impressions very different from these look madge they are the footprints of a human person "'But who could have been here?' inquired Madge. "'None of the soldiers or women have left the fort, and we are on an island, remember. "'You must be mistaken, my dear. "'But we will follow the marks and see where they lead us.' They did so, and fifty paces further on, both again paused. "'Look, Madge, look!' cried Mrs. Barnett, seizing her companion's arms. "'And then say if I am mistaken.' Near the footprints were the marks of a heavy body, having been dragged along the snow, and the impression of a hand. "'It is the hand of a woman, or a child,' cried Madge. "'Yes,' replied Mrs. Barnett, "'a woman or a child has fallen here exhausted, and risen again to stumble on. Look at the footprints again, and farther on more falls.' "'Who, who could it have been?' exclaimed Madge. "'How can I tell?' replied Mrs. Barnett, some unfortunate creature, imprisoned like ourselves, for three or four months, perhaps, or some shipwrecked wretch, flung upon the coast in a storm. You remember the fire and the cry which Sergeant Long and the Lieutenant Hobson spoke? Come, come, Madge, there must be some one in danger for us to save. And Mrs. Barnett, dragging Madge with her, ran along, following the traces, and further on found that they were stained with blood." The brave, tender-hearted woman had spoken of saving someone in danger, had she then forgotten that there was no safety for any upon the island, doomed, sooner or later, to be swallowed up by the ocean. The impressions on the ground led towards Cape Eskimo, and the two carefully traced them, but the footprints presently disappeared, whilst the bloodstains increased, making an irregular pathway along the snow. It was evident the poor wretch had been unable to walk further, and had crept along on hands and knees. Here and there fragments of torn clothes were scattered about, bits of sealskin and fur. "'Come, come!' cried Mrs. Barnett, whose heart beat violently. Madge followed her. They were only a few yards from Cape Eskimo, which now rose only a few feet above the sea-level, against the background of the sky, and was quite deserted.' The impressions now led them to the right of the cape, and running along they soon climbed to the top. But there was still nothing, absolutely nothing, to be seen. At the foot of the cape, where the slight ascent began, the traces turned to the right, and led straight to the sea. Mrs. Barnett was turning to the right also, but just as she was stepping onto the beach, Madge, who had been following her and looking about uneasily, caught hold of her hand and exclaimed, "'Stop! Stop! No, Madge, no!' cried Mrs. Barnett, who was drawn along by a kind of instinct in spite of herself. "'Stop! Stop! and look!' cried Madge, tightening her hold on her mistress's hand. On the beach, about fifty paces from Cape Eskimo, a large white mass was moving about and growling angrily. It was an immense polar bear, and the two women watched it with beating hearts. It was pacing round and round a bundle of fur on the ground, which it smelt at every now and then, lifting it up and letting it fall again. The bundle of fur looked like the dead body of a walrus. Mrs. Barnett and Madge did not know what to think, whether to advance or to retreat, but presently, as the body was moved about, a kind of hood fell back from the head, and some long locks of brown hair were thrown over the snow. "'It's a woman! It's a woman!' cried Mrs. Barnett, eager to rush to her assistance and find out if she were dead or alive. "'Stop!' Repeated Madge, holding her back. "'The bear won't harm her.' And indeed, the formidable creature merely turned the body over and showed no inclination of tearing it with its dreadful claws. It went away and came back, apparently uncertain what to do. It had not yet perceived the two women who were so anxiously watching it. Suddenly a loud crack was heard. The earth shook, and it seemed as if the whole of Cape Eskimo was about to be plunged into the sea. A large piece of the island had broken away, and a huge piece of ice, the centre of gravity of which had been displaced by the alteration in its specific weight, drifted away, carrying with it the bear and the body of the woman. Mrs. Barnett screamed, and would have flung herself upon the broken ice. Before it floated away, if Madge had not clutched her hand firmly, saying quietly, Stop! Stop! At the noise produced by the breaking off of the piece of ice, the bear started back with a fearful growl, and, leaving the body, rushed to the side where the fracture had taken place. But he was already some forty feet from the coast, and in his terror he ran round and round the islet, tearing up the ground with his claws, and stamping the sand and snow about him. Presently he turned to the motionless body, and to the horror of the two women, seized it by the clothes with his teeth, and carrying it to the edge of the ice, plunged with it into the sea. Being a powerful swimmer, like the whole race of Arctic bears, he soon gained the shores of the island— With a great exertion of strength, he managed to climb up the ice, and having reached the surface of the island, he quietly laid down the body he had brought with him. Mrs. Barnett could no longer be held back, and shaking off Madge's hold, she rushed to the beach, never thinking of the danger she ran in, facing a formidable, carnivorous creature. The bear, seeing her approach, reared upon his hind legs, and came towards her, But at about ten paces off he paused, shook his great head, and turning round with a low growl, quietly walked away towards the centre of the island, without once looking behind him. He, too, was evidently affected by the mysterious fear which had tamed all the wild animals on the island. Mrs. Barnett was soon bending over the body, stretched about the snow. A cry of astonishment burst from her lips. "'Madge! Madge! Come!' she exclaimed. Madge approached and looked long and fixedly at the inanimate body. It was the young Eskimo girl, Kalumaha. End of chapter 8 Part 2 Chapter 9 of The Fur Country This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, Please visit LibriVox.org. The Fur Country by Jules Verne, Chapter Nine, Kalumaha's Adventures. Kalumaha on the floating island, two hundred miles from the American coast, it was almost incredible. The first thing to be ascertained was whether the poor creature still breathed. Was it possible to restore her to life? Mrs. Barnett loosened her clothes and found that her body was not yet quite cold. Her heart beat feebly, but it did beat. The blood they had seen came from a slight wound in her hand. Madge bound it up with her handkerchief, and the bleeding soon ceased. At the same time, Mrs. Barnett raised the poor girl's head, and managed to pour a few drops of rum between her parted lips. She then bathed her forehead and temples with cold water, and waited— A few minutes passed by, and neither of the watchers were able to utter a word. So anxious were they, lest the faint spark of life remaining to the young Eskimo should be quenched. But at last Kalumaha's breast heaved with a faint sigh. Her hands moved feebly, and presently she opened her eyes, and, recognizing her preserver, she murmured, Mrs. Barnett, Mrs. Barnett. The lady was not a little surprised at hearing her own name, had kalumaha voluntarily sought the floating island and did she expect to find her old european friends on it if so how had she come to know it and how had she managed to reach the island two hundred miles from the mainland how could she have guessed that the ice-field as bearing mrs Barnett and all the occupants of fort hope away from the american coast really it all seemed quite inexplicable "'She lives! She will recover!' exclaimed Madge, who felt the vital heat and pulsation returning to the poor bruised body. "'Poor child! poor child!' said Mrs. Barnett, much affected. She murmured my name when she was at the point of death. But now Kalumaha again half-opened her eyes, and looked about her with a dreamy, unsatisfied expression. Presently, however, seeing Mrs. Barnett, her face brightened. The same name again burst from her lips, and painfully, raising her hand, she let it fall on that of her friend. The anxious care of the two women soon revived Kalumaha, whose extreme exhaustion arose not only from fatigue but also from hunger. She had eaten nothing for forty-eight hours. Some pieces of cold venison and a little rum refreshed her, and she soon felt able to accompany her newly found friends to the fort. Before starting, however, Kalumaha, seated on the sand between Mrs. Barnett and Madge, overwhelmed them with thanks and expressions of attachment. Then she told her story. She had not forgotten the Europeans of Fort Hope, and the thought of Mrs. Paulina Barnett had been ever present with her. It was not by chance, as we shall see, that she had come to Victoria Island. The following is a brief summary of what Kalumaha related to Mrs. Barnett. Our readers will remember the young Eskimo's promise to come and see her friends at Fort Hope again in the fine season of the next year. The long polar night being over, and the month of May having come round, Kalumaha set out to fulfil her pledge. She left Russian America, where she had wintered, and accompanied by one of her brothers-in-law, started for the peninsula of Victoria. Six weeks later, towards the middle of June, she got to that part of British America, which is near Cape Bathurst. She at once recognized the volcanic mountains shutting in Liverpool Bay, and twenty miles further east she came to Walrus's Bay, where her people had so often hunted morses and seals. But beyond the bay on the north there was nothing to be seen. The coast suddenly sank to the southeast in an almost straight line. Cape Eskimo and Cape Bathurst alike had disappeared. Kalumaha understood what had happened. Either the whole of the peninsula had been swallowed up by the waves, or it was floating away as an island no one knew whither. Kalumaha's tears flowed fast at the loss of those whom she had come so far to see. Her brother-in-law, however, had not appeared surprised at the catastrophe, a kind of legend or tradition had been handed down amongst the nomad tribes of North America, that Cape Bathurst did not form part of the mainland, but had been joined on to it thousands of years before, and would sooner or later be torn away in some convulsion of nature. Hence the surprise at finding the factory founded by Hobson at the foot of the Cape." but with the unfortunate reserve characteristic of the race, and perhaps also under the influence of that enmity which all natives feel for those who settle in their country, they said nothing to the lieutenant, whose fort was already finished. Kalumaha knew nothing of this tradition, which after all rested on no trustworthy evidence, and probably belonged to the many northern legends relating to creation. This was how it was that the colonists of Fort Hope were not warned of the danger they ran in settling on such a spot. Had a word in season been spoken to Hobson, he would certainly have gone further, in search of some firmer foundation for his fort than this soil, certain peculiarities of which he had noticed at the first— when kalumaha had made quite sure that all traces of cape bathurst was gone she explored the coast as far as the further side of washburn bay but without finding any sign of those she sought and at last there was nothing left for her to do but to return to the fisheries of russian america she and her brother-in-law left walrus's bay at the end of june and following the coast got back to new georgia towards the end of july after an absolutely fruitless journey Kalumaha now gave up all hope of again seeing Mrs. Barnett and the other colonists of Fort Hope. She concluded that they had all been swallowed up by the ocean long ago. At this part of her tale the young Eskimo looked at Mrs. Barnett with eyes full of tears, and pressed her hand affectionately. And then she murmured her thanks to God for her own preservation through the means of her friend." Kalumaha, on her return home, resumed her customary occupations, and worked with the rest of her tribe at the fisheries near Icy Cape, a point a little above the 70th parallel, and more than six hundred miles from Cape Bathurst. Nothing worthy of note happened during the first half of the month of April, but towards the end the storm began which had caused Hobson so much uneasiness, and which had apparently extended its ravages over the whole of the Arctic Ocean and beyond Bering Strait. It was equally violent at Icy Cape and on Victoria Island, and as the lieutenant ascertained in his bearings, the latter was then not more than two hundred miles from the coast. As Mrs. Barnett listened to Kalumaha, her previous information enabled her rapidly to find the key to the strange events which had taken place, and to account for the arrival of the young native on the island. During the first days of the storm the Eskimo of Icy Cape were confined to their huts. They could neither get out nor fish. But during the night of the 31st August a kind of presentiment led Kalumaha to venture down to the beach, and braving the wind and rain in all their fury, she peered anxiously through the darkness at the waves rising mountains high. Presently she thought she saw a huge mass, driven along by the hurricane, parallel with the coast. Gifted with extremely keen sight, as all these wandering tribes, accustomed to the long dark polar nights, she felt sure that she was not mistaken. Something of this vast bulk was passing two miles from the coast, and that something could be neither a whale, a boat, nor at this time of the year even an iceberg— But Kalumaha did not stop to reason. The truth flashed upon her like a revelation. Before her excited imagination rose the images of her friends. She saw them all once more—Mrs. Barnett, Madge, Lieutenant Hobson, the baby she had covered with kisses at Fort Hope. Yes, they were passing, borne along in the storm, on a floating ice-field— kalumaha did not doubt or hesitate a moment she felt that she must tell the poor shipwrecked people which she was sure they were of the close vicinity of the land she ran to her hut seized a torch of tow and resin such as the eskimo use when fishing at night lit it and waved it on the beach at the summit of icy cape this was the fire which hobson and long had seen when crouching on cape michael on the night of the thirty-first august Imagine the delight of the young Eskimo when a signal replied to hers, when she saw the huge fire lit by Lieutenant Hobson, the reflection of which reached the American coast, although he did not dream that he was so near it. But it quickly went out. The lull in the storm only lasted a few minutes, and the fearful gale veering around to the southeast swept along with redoubled violence, Kalumaha. Feared that her prey, so she called the floating island, was about to escape her, and that it would not be driven on to the shore. She saw it fading away, and knew that it would soon disappear in the darkness and be lost to her on the boundless ocean. It was indeed a terrible moment for the young native, and she determined at all hazards to let her friends know of their situation. There might yet be time for them to take some steps for their deliverance." although every hour took them further from the continent. She did not hesitate a moment. Her kayak was at hand. The frail bark, in which she had more than once, braved the storms of the Arctic Ocean. She pushed it down to the sea, hastily laced on the sealskin jacket, fastened to the canoe, and, the long paddle in her hand, she plunged into the darkness. Mrs. Barnett here pressed the brave child to her heart, and Madge shed tears of sympathy. When launched upon the roaring ocean, Kalumaha found the change of wind in her favor. The wave dashed over her kayak, it is true, but they were powerless to harm the light boat, which floated on their crests like a straw. It was capsized several times, but a stroke of the paddle righted it at once. After about an hour's hard work, Kalumaha could see the wandering island more distinctly, and had no longer any doubt of effecting her purpose, as she was but a quarter of a mile from the beach. It was then that she uttered the cry which Hobson and Long had heard. But alas, Kalumaha now felt herself being carried away towards the west by a powerful current, which could take firmer hold of her kayak than of the floating island. In vain she struggled to beat back with her paddle. The light boat shot along like an arrow, She uttered scream after scream, but she was unheard, for she was already far away, and when the day broke, the coast of Alaska and the island she had wished to reach were but two distant masses on the horizon. Did she despair? Not yet. It was impossible to get back to the American continent in the teeth of the terrible wind which was driving the island before it at a rapid pace, taking it out two hundred miles in thirty-six hours, and assisted by the current from the coast. There was but one thing left to do—to get to the island by keeping in the same current which was drifting it away. But alas! the poor girl's strength was not equal to her courage. She was faint from want of food, and exhausted as she was, she could no longer wield her paddle. For some hours she struggled on, and seemed to be approaching the island although those on it could not see her, as she was but a speck upon the ocean. She struggled on until her stiffened arms and bleeding hands fell powerless, and, losing consciousness, she was floated along in her frail kayak at the mercy of winds and waves. She did not know how long this lasted. She remembered nothing more, until a sudden shock roused her. Her kayak had struck against something. It opened beneath her and was plunged into cold water, the freshness of which revived her. A few moments later she was flung upon the sand in a dying state by a large wave. This had taken place the night before, just before dawn, that is to say about two or three o'clock in the morning. Kalumaha had then been seventy hours at sea since she embarked. The young native had no idea where she had been thrown, whether on the continent or on the floating island, which she had so bravely sought, but she hoped the latter. Yes, hoped that she had reached her friends, although she knew that the wind and current had driven them into the open sea, and not towards the coast. The thought revived her, and shattered as she was, she struggled to her feet, and tried to follow the coast. She had, in fact, been providentially thrown on that portion of Victoria Island, which was formerly the upper corner of Walrus's Bay. But, worn away as it was by the waves, she did not recognize the land with which she had once been familiar. She tottered on, stopped, and again struggled to advance. The beach before her appeared endless. She had so often to go round where the sea had encroached upon the sand and so dragging herself along stumbling and scrambling up again she at last approached the little wood where mrs Barnett and madge had halted that very morning we know that the two women found the footprints left by kalumaha in the snow not far from this very spot and it was at a short distance further on that the poor girl fell for the last time exhausted by fatigue and hunger she still managed to creep along on hands and knees, for a few minutes longer. A great hope kept her from despair, for she had at last recognized Cape Eskimo, at the foot of which she and her people had encamped the year before. She knew now that she was but eight miles from the factory, and that she had only to follow the path she had so often traversed when she went to visit her friends at Fort Hope. Yes, this hope sustained her, but she had scarcely reached the beach, when her forces entirely failed her, and she again lost all consciousness. But for Mrs. Barnett she would have died. But, dear lady, she added, I knew that you would come to my rescue, and that God would save me by your means. We know the rest. We know the providential instinct which led Mrs. Barnett and Madge to explore this part of the coast on this very day, and the presentiment which made them visit Cape Eskimo, after they had rested, and before returning to Fort Hope. We know, too, as Mrs. Barnett related to Kalumaha, how the piece of ice had floated away, and how the bear had acted under the circumstances. And after all, added Mrs. Barnett with a smile, it was not I who saved you, but the good creature, without whose aid you would never have come back to us, and if ever we see him again we will treat him with the respect due to your preserver." During this long conversation, Kalumaha was rested and refreshed, and Mrs. Barnett proposed that they should return to the fort at once, as she had already been too long away. The young girl immediately rose ready to start. Mrs. Barnett was indeed most anxious to tell the lieutenant of all that had happened during the night of the storm, when the wandering island had neared the American continent but she urged Kalumaha to keep her adventures secret, and to say nothing about the situation of the island. She would naturally be supposed to have come along the coast, in fulfilment of the promise she had made to visit her friends in the fine season. Her arrival would tend only to strengthen the belief of the colonists that no changes had taken place in the country around Cape Bathurst, and to set at rest the doubts any of them might have entertained." it was about 3 o'clock when madge and mrs barnett with kalumaha hanging on her arm set out towards the east and before 5 o'clock in the afternoon they all arrived at the postern of the fort end of chapter 9 part 2 chapter 10 of the fur country this is a librivox recording all LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Fur Country by Jules Verne. Chapter 10. The Kamchatka Current. We can readily imagine the reception given to Kalumaha by all at the fort. It seemed to them that the communication with the outer world was reopened. Mrs. McNabb, Mrs. Ray, and Mrs. Joliffe overwhelmed her with caresses, but Kalumaha's first thought was for the little child. She caught sight of him immediately, and running to him, covered him with kisses. The young native was charmed and touched with the hospitality of her European hosts. A positive fete was held in her honour, and every one was delighted that she would have to remain at the fort for the winter the season being too far advanced for her to get back to the settlements of Russian America before the cold set in. But if all the settlers were agreeably surprised at the appearance of Kalumaha, what must Lieutenant Hobson have thought when he saw her leaning on Mrs. Barnett's arm? A sudden hope flashed across his mind like lightning, and as quickly died away. Perhaps in spite of the evidence of his daily observations, Victoria Island had run aground somewhere on the continent, unnoticed by any of them. Mrs. Barnett read the lieutenant's thoughts in his face, and shook her head sadly. He saw that no change had taken place in their situation, and waited until Mrs. Barnett was able to explain Kalumaha's appearance. A few minutes later he was walking along the beach with the lady... "'listening with great interest to her account of Kalumaha's adventures. "'So he had been right in all his conjectures. "'The northeast hurricane had driven the island out of the current. "'The ice-field had approached within a mile, at least, of the American continent. "'It had not been a fire on board a ship which they had seen, "'or the cry of a shipwrecked mariner which they had heard. "'The mainland had been close at hand, "'and had the northeast wind blown hard for another hour.' Victoria Island would have struck against the coast of Russian America. And then, at this crucial moment, a fatal, a terrible wind had driven the island away from the mainland, back to the open sea. And it was again in the grasp of the irresistible current, and was being carried along with a speed which nothing could check. The mighty southeast wind, aiding its headlong course to that terribly dangerous spot, where it would be exposed to contrary attractions, either of which might lead to its destruction, and that of all the unfortunate people dragged along with it. For the hundredth time the lieutenant and Mrs. Barnett discussed all the bearings of the case, and then Hobson inquired if any important changes had taken place in the appearance of the districts between Cape Bathurst and Walrus Bay. Mrs. Barnett replied that in some places the level of the coast appeared to be lowered, and that the waves now covered tracts of sand which were formerly out of their reach. She related what had happened at Cape Eskimo and the important fracture which had taken place at that part of the coast. Nothing could have been less satisfactory. It was evident that the ice-field forming the foundation of the island was breaking up. What had happened at Cape Eskimo might at any moment be reproduced at Cape Bathurst. At any hour of the day or night, the houses of the factory might be swallowed up by the deep, and the only thing which could save them was the winter—the bitter winter which was fortunately rapidly approaching. The next day, September 4th, when Hobson took his bearings, he found that the position of Victoria Island had not sensibly changed since the day before— it had remained motionless between the two contrary currents which was on the whole the very best thing that could have happened if only the cold would fix us where we are if the ice wall would shut us in and the sea become petrified around us exclaimed hobson i should feel that our safety was assured but we are two hundred miles from the coast at this moment and by venturing across the frozen ice-fields we might perhaps reach either Russian america or Kamchukta. Winter, winter at any price, let the winter set in, no matter how rapidly. Meanwhile, according to the lieutenant's orders, the preparations for the winter were completed. Enough forage to last the dogs the whole of the polar night was stored up. They were all in good health, but getting rather fat with having nothing to do. They could not be taking too much care of, as they would have to work terribly hard in the journey across the ice after the abandonment of Fort Hope. It was most important to keep up their strength, and they were fed on raw reindeer venison, plenty of which was easily attainable. The tame reindeer also prospered, their stable was comfortable, and a good supply of moss was laid by for them in the magazines of the fort the females provided mrs joliffe with plenty of milk for her daily culinary needs the corporal and his little wife had also sown fresh seeds encouraged by the success of the last in the warm season the ground had been prepared beforehand for the planting of scurvy grass and labrador tea it was important that there should be no lack of these valuable antiscorbutics. The sheds were filled with wood up to the very roof. Winter might come as soon as it liked now, and freeze the mercury in the cistern of the thermometer. There was no fear that they would again be reduced to burn their furniture as they had the year before. McNab and his men had become wise by experience, and the chips left from the boat-building added considerably to their stock of fuel about this time a few animals were taken which had already assumed their winter furs such as martens, pole cats blue foxes and ear mines and sabine had obtained leave from the lieutenant to set some traps outside the encant he did not like to refuse them this permission lest they should become discontented as he had really no reason to assign for putting a stop to the collection of furs although he knew full well that the destination of these harmless creatures could do nobody any good. Their flesh was, however, useful for feeding the dogs, and enabled them to economize the reindeer venison. All was now prepared for the winter, and the soldiers worked with an energy which they would certainly not have shown if they had been told the secret of their situation. During the next few days the bearings were taken with the greatest care, but no change was noticeable in the situation of Victoria Island. And Hobson, finding that it was motionless, began to have fresh hope, although there was as yet no symptoms of winter in inorganic nature, the temperature maintaining a mean height of 49 degrees Fahrenheit. Some swans flying to the south in search of a warmer climate was a good omen. Other birds, capable of a long-sustained flight over vast tracts of the ocean, began to desert the island. They knew full well that the continent of America and Asia, with their less severe climates and their plentiful resources of every kind, were not far off, and that their wings were strong enough to carry them there. A good many of these birds were caught, and by Mrs. Barnett's advice the lieutenant tied round their necks a stiff-cloth ticket, on which was inscribed the position of the wandering island, and the names of its inhabitants the birds were then set free, and their captors watched them wing their way to the south with envious eyes. Of course none were in the secret of the sending forth of these messengers, except Mrs. Barnett, Madge, Kalumaha, Hobson, and Long. The poor quadrupeds were unable to seek their usual winter refuges in the south. Under ordinary circumstances the reindeer, Polar hares and even the wolves would have left early in September for the shores of the Great Bear and Slave Lakes a good many degrees further south. But now the sea was an insurmountable barrier, and they, too, would have to wait until the winter should render it passable. Led by instinct, they had doubtless tried to leave the island, but, turned back by the water, the instinct of self-preservation had brought them to the neighbourhood of Fort Hope to be near the men who were once their hunters, and most formidable enemies, but they were now, like themselves, rendered comparatively inoffensive by their imprisonment. The observations of the 5th, 6th, 7th, 8th, and ninth September revealed no alteration in the position of Victoria Island. The large eddy between the two currents kept it stationary another fifteen days. Another three weeks of this state of things, and Hobson felt that they might be saved. But they were not yet out of danger, and many terrible, almost supernatural trials still awaited the inhabitants of Fort Hope. On the 10th of September observations showed a displacement of Victoria Island, only a slight displacement, but in a northerly direction. Hobson was in dismay, The island was finally in the grasp of the Kamchatka current, and was drifting towards the unknown latitudes where the large icebergs came into being. It was on its way to the vast solitudes of the Arctic Ocean, interdicted to the human race, from which there is no return. Hobson did not hide this new danger from those who were in the secret of the situation— Missus Barnett Madge Kalumaha and Sergeant Long received this fresh blow with courage and resignation perhaps said missus Barnett the island may stop even yet perhaps it will move slowly let us hope on and wait the winter is not far off and we are going to meet it in any case god's will be done my friends said hobson earnestly "'Do you not think I ought now to tell our comrades? "'You see in what a terrible position we are, "'and all that may await us. "'Is it not taking too great a responsibility "'to keep them in ignorance of the peril they are in?' "'I should wait a little longer,' replied Mrs. Barnett, without hesitation. "'I would not give them all over to despair "'until the last chance is gone.' "'That is my opinion also,' said Long. "'Hobson had thought the same.' and was glad to find that his companions agreed with him in the matter. On the 11th and 12th September the motion towards the north was more noticeable. Victoria Island was drifting at a rate of from twelve to thirteen miles a day, so that each day took them the same distance further from the land and nearer to the north. They were, in short, following the decided course made by the Kamchatka current, and would quickly pass that seventieth degree which once cut across the extremity of Cape Bathurst, and beyond which no land of any kind was to be met with in this part of the Arctic Ocean. Every day Hobson looked out their position on the map, and saw only too clearly to what awful solitudes the wandering island was drifting. The only hope left consisted, as Mrs. Barnett had said, in the fact that they were going to meet the winter— in thus drifting towards the north, they would soon encounter those ice-cold waters which would consolidate and strengthen the foundations of the island. But if the danger of being swallowed up by the waves was decreased, would not the unfortunate colonists have an immense distance to traverse to get back from these remote northern regions? Had the boat been finished, Lieutenant Hobson would not have hesitated to embark the whole party in it. But in spite of the zealous efforts of the carpenter, It was not nearly ready, and, indeed, it taxed McNabb's powers to the uttermost to construct a vessel on which to trust the lives of twenty persons in such a dangerous sea. By the 16th September, Victoria Island was between seventy-three and eighty miles north of the spot where its course had been arrested for a few days between the Bering and Kemptuckta currents. There were now, however, many signs of the approach of winter snow fell frequently and in large flakes. The column of mercury fell gradually. The mean temperature was still 44 degrees Fahrenheit during the day, but at night it fell to 32 degrees. The sun described an extremely lengthened curve above the horizon, not rising more than a few degrees even at noon, and disappearing for 11 hours out of every 24. At last, on the night of the 16th September. The first signs of ice appeared upon the sea in the shape of small isolated crystals like snow, which stained the clear surface of the water, as was noticed by the famous explorer Scoresby. These crystals immediately calmed the waves, like the oil which sailors pour upon the sea to produce a momentary cessation of its agitation. These crystals showed a tendency to weld themselves together, But they were broken and separated by the motion of the water as soon as they had combined to any extent. Hobson watched the appearance of the young ice with extreme attention. He knew that twenty four hours would suffice to make the ice crust two or three inches thick, strong enough in fact to bear the weight of a man. He therefore expected that Victoria Island would shortly be arrested in its course to the north. But the day ended the work of the night, and if the speed of the island slackened during the darkness, in consequence of the obstacles in its path, they were removed in the next twelve hours, and the island was carried rapidly along again by the powerful current. The distance from the northern regions became daily less, and nothing could be done to lessen the evil. At the autumnal equinox of the 21st of September, the day and night were of equal length and from that date the night gradually became longer and longer the winter was coming at last but it did not set in rapidly or with any vigour victoria island was now nearly a degree further north than the seventieth parallel and on this twenty-first september a rotating motion was the first time noticed a motion estimated by hobson at about a quarter of the circumference Imagine the anxiety of the unfortunate lieutenant. The secret he had so long carefully kept was now about to be betrayed by nature, to the least clear-sighted. Of course the rotation altered the cardinal points of the island. Cape Bathurst no longer pointed to the north, but to the east. The sun, moon, and stars rose and set on a different horizon— and it was impossible that men, like Macnab, Ray, Marlborough, and others, accustomed to note the signs of the heavens, could fail to be struck by the change, and understand its meaning. To Hobson's great satisfaction, however, the brave soldiers appeared to notice nothing. The displacement with regard to the cardinal points was not, it was true, very considerable, and it was often too foggy for the rising and setting of the heavenly bodies to be accurately observed. Unfortunately, the rotation appeared to be accompanied by an increase of speed. From that date, Victoria Island drifted at a rate of a mile an hour. It advanced further and further north, further and further away from all land. Hobson did not even yet despair, for it was not in his nature to do so. But he felt confused and astray, and longed for the winter with all his heart. At last— The temperature began to fall still lower. Snow fell plentifully on the twenty-third and twenty-fourth September, and increased the thickness of the coating of ice on the sea. Gradually the vast ice-field was formed on every side. The island, in its advance, continually broke it up. But each day it became firmer and better able to resist. The sea succumbed to the petrifying hand of winter, and became frozen as far as the eye could reach. And on September 27th, when the bearings were taken, it was found that Victoria Island had not moved since the day before. It was imprisoned in a vast ice-field. It was motionless in longitude 177 degrees, 22 minutes, and latitude 77 degrees, 57 minutes, more than 600 miles from any continent. End of chapter 10